Empty Frames is an independent production. The commentary expressed here is our own and does not reflect the opinions of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum or its staff. To learn more about the museum, including the 1990 theft, please visit the museum's website at www.isgm.org. If you have any critical information relating specifically to the 1990 theft, please contact the museum's security director via the options provided on the museum's website. The museum continues to offer a reward totaling $10 million for information that can lead to the return of the stolen artwork. We are bothered by the loss the art world suffered in 1990, and we are not content with the status quo. One stolen painting to note is from Manet, a French artist who created Che Tortoni, circa 1880. It's an elegant depiction of a man sketching a half-consumed beer on the table as he calmly looks at his audience. We started this podcast to raise awareness of the theft and to show our support for the ongoing recovery efforts. While those recovery efforts progress as they do daily, we encourage our listeners to visit the museum, to appreciate its incredible collection, both past and present, and to donate directly to the museum through its website. Again, if you enjoy this podcast and you feel as we do about the missing artwork, the most productive way for you to express your view is to donate directly to the Gardner Museum via its website. Go to isgm.org and look for the Join and Give tab, where there are options to make a donation of any size to support the museum's mission. Please donate today. And when you do, let us know on Twitter so we can personally thank you there. Thanks again. March 18, 1990, the most audacious art heist of all time took place at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. Two men dressed as police officers were admitted into the building by security, claiming to be responding to a disturbance call. In 81 minutes, 13 pieces of art were stolen. Among the portraits stripped from their frames were works by Vermeer, Degas, and Rembrandt. Estimated at half a billion dollars, the heist has been categorized as the largest and most frustrating of all time. Theories of their whereabouts and those who perpetrated the crime are abundant. In this podcast series, we will dig as deep as possible into the case, the theories, and the social and economic impact the greatest unsolved art heist of all time had on the community. This is Empty Frames, a heist story. Welcome back to Empty Frames. I am Tim here today with Lance in the Crawl Space Studios. What's up, Lance? Oh, not too much. How are you today? Doing great. We have an interesting episode to bring our listeners today. For the bulk of the episode, we'll be talking to Brendan Sieco, who is the CEO of QZM, whose project Hacking the Heist got a lot of publicity back in March around the time of the anniversary of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist. So we're going to play that in just a few minutes. But first, we wanted to bring these outtakes from our episode called Security Breach with Marge Gallus, who worked at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum at the time of the heist, was not there that night, but worked there at that time and knew all the players involved, at least a lot of these people that we talk about, like 
specifically the two guards who were on that night. Randy and Rick. She she spoke of both of them very highly, but what really like gave our uh, you know, put our our antenna up was that how highly she spoke of Rick. And we have some some of these moments that just didn't make the last episode and we wanted to put it out there because we don't want the listeners, especially Rick Abbott, who was, you know, notoriously connected to the heist because he was there. And you have the picture of him duct taped down in the boiler room. So we, we, we've we heard that he listens to the show and we don't want this to be an anti-Rick platform. It's certainly not by any means an anti-Rick Abbott platform. Right. And I think when you start to look into the Gardner case, that's one of the immediate assumptions you jump to. And I think that's maybe something that we looked at, but we always took the point, well, if we could prove that he wasn't this inside source, then, you know, we're really getting somewhere with the podcast. And I don't know that we're about to prove that he wasn't the guy, but personally, I don't think he was. Uh, there's kind of nothing to suggest that he definitely was the inside source. Right. Other than him being there and letting them in and, The speculation of, well, if this was done so easily and people have gotten away with it for so long, there has to be an inside source because that's just what your brain does when you try to put these things together and be your own detective on it. But we do have some just interesting things that when you dig into the old articles that were written about it, we had Mr. K send us a couple of articles that he found uh, reread and found a couple of points in there that were interesting. Uh, One was from a 1992 New York Times article which uh, suggests that the Blue Room was a destination spot for any thief. And the quote was that uh, there were three other paintings that normally hung there that were temporarily in the museum's laboratory for treatment. And that raises an interesting concept when you think about these three other paintings, that if the thieves knew were in there but didn't know that they were out for restoration... Was there an inside source at all? Wouldn't the inside source say, don't even bother going in there because those three paintings that have a, val- have a significant value aren't there anymore? You know, it just doesn't make much sense. Okay, so let's play these few minutes from our chat with Marge, and then we'll be back to wrap it up. You portrayed Rick in a, a, a very different light, I think, than most do. And I'm just I'm curious, do, do you think that the scrutiny of him is really misplaced? And if so, do, do you think there's anything he could do to kind of definitively establish his innocence? That's a curious thing. I don't know what Rick's life has been like, you know, post that time. I know he, I think I've read that he lives in New Hampshire. It seems like he's married, maybe. He's a teacher, apparently. But it is interesting that it seems like he just doesn't want to answer any questions. Having the opportunity to have been a reporter I've encountered those people that don't want to really do interviews because they've been misquoted or their comments have been represented, misrepresented. Um, And I even had an experience like that myself where I just did this little article for someone and they misquoted me. It was kind of a minor point, but it did make me feel like, wait, that's not what I said. And now that makes me sound really stupid. So, I mean, I don't know if, part of his reaction is just he's tired of the way that he's been portrayed and he just doesn't want to have any any involvement with it anymore it, it, it is unfortunate because of that because of the way he's handling it it does make it seem like you know he's got something to hide maybe or why isn't he 
why isn't he just saying, you know, this wasn't me? Or I guess with that tape with Larry, um, I guess the tape was brought to Rick to check check out and he didn't even want to look at it. He wasn't going to comment about who he thought the person was. So, you know, I, I feel like he could do more. But again, I don't really know what his situation has been like since that time and you know the different people that have been in touch with him and you know the the scrutiny about the blue room and the stolen painting painting from that room and the fact that he was the last person on record in that room so you know it, it, without really knowing much about him anymore it just it's hard to it's hard to say it's such an interesting thing uh right now with with the way people consume and regurgitate information i think a lot of people if they hear something or if it comes from a specific source you know like this whole fake fake news uh the term that trump has made so popular but uh, there's an element to it that that actually led to him being elected you know people would post something or someone would see oh a friend shared this link oh it's going to be they shared it, so I'm going to share it. Oh, it's interesting. I'm going to share it without really questioning, you know, what's the content of, of this? Is this accurate? Who's who's reported it? Does this person, is this person a real reporter? Do they, do they have that sort of background to, you know, to be trusted, to feel, do, can I feel like they've done their investigation and their due diligence and what they're presenting me is as factual as, as possible. So I think, you know, people kind of jump on bandwagons and I, I kind of feel a little bit like that's what's happened with Rick, you know, like I said, he was a clever guy and he did do things at a certain point. He was making money by hosting band concerts in his basement, for instance, um, which I guess is (laughs) probably illegal, but, you know, he was a clever guy and he figured out how to do that. Does that make him a crook, you know, or does that make him a thief? I don't think so. He was a, a guy making some spare cash and bands got hurt and no one got hurt. Okay, so I think that's pretty interesting stuff there from Marge, and I think she makes some good points. And it is totally possible that Rick has been unfairly treated by the media. And I want to add that, like we said before that clip, the only thing that even really kind of remotely suggests that Abbott is guilty of being an inside source is this blue room motion detector that says none of the thieves went in there to get the Che Tortoni, but the Che Tortoni was taken out. Also, he let the thieves in, but they were dressed as cops. So if he was an inside source that had coordinated with these thieves, they wouldn't have to dress like cops. Exactly. That seems like a, like a futile task, right? Sort of, sort of a frivolous thing, almost for fun. You'd, you'd be Because, I mean, the fact is, is that they were dressed like police officers so that that if if he was an inside source and he knew that this was about to happen they that would mean that they only dress like police officers just for the thrill of it right so i guess what i'm asking is i want to know more about this these motion detectors from the blue room could they have been faulty so how many how many times on record have there been false uh motion sensors that have gone off in the past 
you know, had to, had to, did it happen after the fact, too? You also mentioned these articles that Mr. K sent from a New York Times article in 1992 where they were comparing this theft that was unsuccessful to the Gardner theft and was talking about the thieves being proficient in disabling a moderately sophisticated electronic alarm system in this attempted hide heist. But it also said that that happened in the Gardner heist. So am I missing something that, that the thieves disabled a moderately sophisticated electronic alarm system? Because that's what the New York Times in 1992 said. Well, it does show a bit of confusion, right, of with the details that are out there. As far as we know, right, there hasn't been anything saying that any sort of alarm system, whether it was the local alarm system or the one that goes to um, the, the police, nothing had been disabled. All we know is that a videotape was taken. In Steve Kirchin's Master Thieves, it talks about some moments that the alarm system had that night. So maybe that is part of this. I, I really don't know. I'm confused. But what what we're saying is we need to get a little more information about this motion detector because it seems like they missed some of these steps from the actual thieves anyway. Or it could be that on top of some information that is disseminated that is uh, not accurate. Like the two articles from 1992 that Mr. K forwarded to us, the Yankee Magazine article, which just says that the thieves ignored those three paintings that were being restored and a John Singer Sargent painting and, and went with the uh, Che Tortoni. Right. So they didn't realize in that article that those three paintings weren't even in that room. And this motion detector doesn't detect the thieves going back down to the basement to check on Rick at one point, even though we were told that 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 happened so i i guess i'm questioning the validity of these motion detectors i just want to reiterate this right the devil can be in the details a lot of the times and you have you have what's detected in the blue room we have what we know was not in the blue room which was three paintings of extreme value and we have somebody who worked at the museum who could have told the thieves that they weren't in there, don't bother going in. So the question is, if the three other paintings had been taken, if they were there, and they had been taken from the from the Blue Room, would Rick still be accused of removing the Che Tortoni himself? I don't know. Right? And in Marge's full interview, she mentions that if Rick did go into the Blue Room to take the Che Tortoni off the wall before the thieves arrived, which is sort of what the motion detectors um, suggest that it would have been in the sight of Randy, the other guard. He would have had to have walked by him. It's not like the Blue Room is really far from where he was. He would have been sitting. And as we know from the interviews that we've done with Marge and Jeffrey Rockwell, they communicated through the walkie-talkies pretty, pretty often when they were, you know, especially on the overnight shifts. You almost wanted to do it just to make sure that the other person was still alert, you know, was still with you. And if you're if you're going through the museum, if you're leaving your security desk, I mean, you also know that the security video is being taken of you leaving the desk as well. It just doesn't. I know a lot of listeners might be thinking something happened behind the scenes where we were told to not talk about Rick in a negative light. But it's not that at all. It's just us getting as deep as we've gotten into this and looking at old articles and having discussions with Mr. K and our guests including Marge, and then saying, well, yeah, some of these things don't make sense about him being an inside source, and we don't want to make it seem like we're anti-Rick. We've, do we've done 11 episodes now, and we haven't found anything that, that points to him definitively 
or any inside source definitively. In fact, actually, I think we've, uh, if anything, uncovered the opposite. We've uncovered that something that could quite possibly be an outside source that hustled their way in and just checked out things on a surface level and then delivered that information back to whoever actually perpetrated the crime. So if you're confused by this conversation, rest assured, we are too. Um, but we are trying to get some more information out about these motion detectors, and we would love to hear from Rick Abbott. So, Rick, if you are out there listening, please send us a note. We would love to talk to you as, as much as we can. And it can be off the record. It could be you you know, chat with us via email, maybe a phone call. We figure out where to go from there. And say what you want and, and tell us not to use what you don't want us to use. Okay, so now we are going to play our interview with QZM CEO and founder, Brendan Sieco. Can you tell us about your project? I live and breathe art and technology. And a couple weeks ago, uh, some members of my team were talking about some interesting new ways that um, we could push the limits of augmented reality. Um, we had been working very closely with some of the new possibilities that are enabled by Apple's AR kit and working in the museum atmosphere um, to test some of those new concepts out. And I came back from one of my recent uh, prototyping sessions and a member of my team was like, hey, no, it would be really cool is if we put the stolen art back in the frames at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum and um, you know abracadabra we gave it a shot and it seemed to uh, seem to work yeah it's a pretty cool project when you look at it uh, it's called hacking the heist and this is an offshoot of your um, your larger company uh, Qzeum and uh, it, it's it's all very like interconnected and and relatable. Can you uh, tell us a bit about what uh, Qzeum is is uh, is about? Yeah, Qzeum's primary mission and goal is to help museums, public attractions, and cultural institutions uh, engage their visitors, members, and donors using the power of technology. We're uh, based in Boston. We started a couple years back with that, you know, with that vision in mind, and have been able to work with over 150 institutions of different shapes and sizes on a, on a variety of different digital engage, engagement endeavors. Um, so it's, you know, again, it's something that we're all super passionate about and, and being able to work with uh, these organizations that have such a, a critical role in, in society. It's something that we wake up excited about every day. Very cool. So hacking the heist. Um, so you, you can take a, a device, a tablet or, a, or an iPad or uh, and, and you can hold it in front of the empty frames on the wall at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, and you can see the actual paintings through the tablet as if they were really there in their frames. How do you view this if you go to the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum? So this is, you know, this has all been uh, an experiment, um, an independent experiment, kind of a, an R&D type of uh, endeavor here, you know, here at QZM. And so it's something that we never, you know, um, you know, we never intended to be publicly accessible. And, and of course, we would want to uh, you know, make sure that the the institution uh, was was, you know, endorsing that and comfortable with that. So at this point in time, it 
uh, is not available for public uh, access or consumption. Um, and, you know, it's not something we've, despite all of the, the interest in it from the, from the public, it's, it's not something that we uh, have made public uh, to date. But you can go to the website hackingtheheist.com and you can see the results of, uh, of, of this project and then it will take you to Qzium and you can look at you know everything that that company has to offer. Um, this this new way to walk through a museum and experience the artwork. Um, and we do know that the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum is very, and as most museums are, very particular about um, what what is uh, captured there. And um, I think keeping it private the way you're keeping it is probably in everybody's sort of best interest. I mean, there, there's so many ways to go about technology and, and in specific looking at augmented reality. In some ways, we live in this wild, wild west with regards to... Uh, where the virtual world, the digital world exists, who owns that, who owns that space, who owns that opportunity. And a lot of those initial conversations were opened up um, around, you know, some of the earliest examples being Pokemon Go or Snapchat's art project. Um, so, you know, it's still a very interesting nascent space. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting to see the dialogue that that project's such as Hacking the Heights, have started um, and, and will continue to, uh, you know, to spark. What was the Gardner's Museum, uh, what was their reaction to it? Um, I can't really speak on behalf of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. Um, so if you're looking for an official statement from the, you know, from the museum and, and their team, it'd probably be, be best to, to reach out to them uh, directly. Yep. Okay. Uh... Same reaction we got uh, from the podcast. For sure. I mean, we're we're Bostonians. We're yeah. neighbors. We support the gardener. We go to the gardener all the time. We have conversations from time to time with uh, staff that work at the gardener museum. Um, so there had been, you know, instances of of staff at the gardener knowing about what we're working on and and asking about it and, and things of that nature. Um, so you know, that's kind of the the unbiased reality of, of something like this. And, and when it comes down to the, um, you know, the visibility of an experimental project, I mean, this is here to inspire people. It's here to showcase the new re realities around what technology enables. Because I think for a lot of people, the idea of augmented reality is fairly abstract. And it's something that, um, you know, from the top, uh, Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, has announced kind of his excitement around how this will transform the way we interact with education, the way we interact with um, the world around us. And so for us at QZAM, we feel very strongly about creating experiences that are educational, that are enriching, that are tied to the world's culture. Um, you know, maybe as compared to, you probably saw a couple of weeks ago, like Street Fighter uh, came out using augmented reality and, and gaming certainly has a, uh, you know, has a big splash in that space. So to create something that, you know, shows the, the beauty of the art that was previously on display, for instance, or raises awareness about the heist or raises awareness about what the works even looked like. For us, we quickly realized most people don't know what the works look like. Um, and that's kind of an interesting thing as you're walking through the museum and you pick up that pamphlet that has outlines of all of the frames and objects and has a key with different numbers inside those frames. And you're like, 
that doesn't tell me really anything about the importance of that Rembrandt or that Vermeer or what it looked like. And, and museums in particular being as visual as they are, we, you know, felt that it would be so inspiring and also a testament to Isabella Stewart Gardner herself, herself, who was a pioneer and a visionary and kind of uh, experimented and, and kind of, you know, did, did things on her own, um, you know, intuition that interested her. We felt that it would honor her, you know, legacy, especially in, you know, in this, in this month. It sounds like there's a part of, uh, you know, cause you're, you're a huge um, proponent of, of the arts um, and you're, you're a young person. And I, I get the sense that there was a bit of urgency to introduce, like, how do you introduce to uh, a, a younger group of, of, you know, millennials how do you introduce to them the beauty of this artwork, the tragedy of the stolen artwork, and then even, you know, the the person who is Isabella Stewart Gardner? And I feel like uh, your your projects here are just a good marriage that, that brings together two worlds that probably, I guess, need to be brought together. Was that any was that in your head when you were when you were coming up with all of this? I mean, that's that's part of my, you know, my life's commitment right now is is looking at the intersection of art and technology and how museums need to adapt or die and they need to look for new avenues to engage their audiences. And the reality is the way people communicate, socialize and see the world is through technology, is through their mobile device is through all of these different um, avenues. And so to be able to, you know, capture the intent, the attention of various types of audiences, you know, this isn't solely dedicated or, or you know, uh, geared towards a younger millennial audience. Um, I think the the beauty of something like this is that it it's magical for for people of, of all ages and demographics and education levels and, and technical uh, literacy because it's just very uh, straightforward and simple. But yeah, it's something that that we feel really strongly about. And, and you know, you're seeing, um, I think it was just, was it last week that the local NPR station did a uh, piece about some of the, the steps that Boston's cultural institutions are taking to engage uh, younger and more diverse audiences. And technology is a critical part of that, any way you slice and dice it. We come across a lot of people uh, who, you know, well, anybody comes across a lot of people who uh, are, you know, they're, they're terrified of technology and computers, but hacking the heist and even uh, what you do with Qzium isn't much different from you know, picking up a pamphlet while you're walking through a museum, you're, you're still, you still have a reference. You're still looking at something, uh, right now, but what you're doing is just putting it, you know, you also have your phone in your hand anyway. So people shouldn't be scared of this technology. It's not, it's not daunting. Every experience you have is mediated, whether it be walking through and reading, uh, interpretive text or holding up a pamphlet, it's completely mediated. Uh, the outlet, for that mediation or that content is the thing that changes. So how did you test uh, this technology? Couple, I think it was like a couple weeks ago, we even decided to try this out in the real world. I mean, we've been doing a lot of um, experimentation around uh, augmented reality as of, as of lately. And specific to this uh, type of experiment, it was late, late on a Thursday um, during one of those uh, late evenings where the gardeners open to like eight or nine o'clock. And I was at the office uh, pretty late. And I'm like, you know what, I'm going to head over and see if this even is technically possible. Uh, not to go too far down like the, the, the geek path, but a lot of the things around 
uh, augmented reality are incredibly exciting, but at the same time, technically challenging. And so there are some things that we needed to see if they were even possible around your device's ability to recognize a vertical surface, aka a wall, um, as well as an image uh, to be able to position an overlay um, in an environment with variable lighting that is super, super dim compared to other environments. And one of the key components to any of this AR stuff is light um, to be able to achieve that. So we're like, yeah, will this even work? And headed over and um, saw that it worked really, really well and then put it on the back burner because we're you know, working on a bazillion projects at once and, and then kind of, you know, hadn't touched it until uh, a couple days before the anniversary. And then we're like, hey, like, I didn't even realize there was like a St. Patrick's Day party at our office on that Friday. And I was in a conference room after a call and I'm like, huh, like, I feel like it kind of sort of happened in March and then realized it was that Sunday. How long does it take to create one of the paintings um, that that is augmented inside its frame. Um. So you know, from the from the visitor perspective, it's instant. But from the programmatic perspective, I mean, it takes several hours and testing and tweaking and um, you know, seeing how all of the elements perform. Um. So that that did take a little bit of time and trial and error. Cool. And how many? Uh, you, it says you're planning to add more of the paintings. How many have you done uh, to this point? Yeah, so we, um, you know, we focused on uh, the two Rembrandts um, in the Dutch room. And, you know, the natural progression would be to have all of the works in the uh, Dutch room uh, taken care of. So, of course, the famous Vermeer. But uh, we haven't haven't really haven't really moved forward or had time to uh, to test that out. But it's something that um, hopefully we'll be able to uh, to jump on and, and experiment with. Uh, but uh, yeah, so far, I mean, just looking at those two particular paintings has been uh, an exciting journey. So if you could choose one of the 13 stolen uh, pieces of property from the museum to have back, if you could just choose one that you could see back in its frame in, in real reality, uh, which one would it be? Have you thought of that? No, I haven't really, uh, haven't really thought of it. It would probably be Christ in the Storm. Um, just based on it being the only seascape that um, that Rembrandt did, um, but uh, yeah, it's really hard. It's really hard to say. I mean, I would defer to whatever Isabella Stewart Gardner would want returned if she were alive in uh, today. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, that would be a huge triumph for the you know for the museum and for Boston and for the world to have back you know in its in its uh, in its collection. Are there any other projects like this that you uh, have on the back burner? Anything that has to do with any other heists or stolen property or you're keeping it local and keeping it to Boston for, for something like this? I mean, it's something we, we have a couple uh, projects that we've been experimenting with um, just around visual culture and different interpretations of two-dimensional artwork uh, and giving them a, a new dimension and a new uh, purpose and a new uh, capacity that people can access them in. Um, I think what's been really exciting for us um, is all of the surprise or unintended dialogue that this has started and, and looking at um, you know something that the uh, the committee that oversees African museums uh, posted something saying, wouldn't it be great if this was 
something we did uh, to show culture that has been taken from our country and is in the process of being um, you know, restituted. And um, I think that's a really extraordinary reaction to think about how much of the world's culture is endangered, how much of the world's culture has been stolen from its uh, country of origin. Um, I know I have a really strong reaction about um, you know, art that was looted during World War II and some of the works that have uh, not been returned or are still lost. And so, you know, for anybody or any of your listeners who have seen Monuments Men or um, followed any of those stories that I feel are in the, in the art news every other week, I think the idea of being able to show um, the works that uh, were, were previously held uh, in a nation's uh, collection or even just thinking about, um, you know, the work that was recently unveiled in London that was a recreation of a piece that was a sculpture that was um, destroyed by ISIS. I think it's just it, it creates a dialogue around just how precious the world's culture is and how even temporarily, I mean, the, the, the permanent, you know, the permanent solution to this stuff is to have the work returned to its rightful owners. But um, in the, you know, in the meantime, uh, using digital to create a dialogue or show what something looked like to tell its story, I think is, is, a, is a great, powerful way to use uh, technology. Inc. Magazine, you uh, named you as one of the most successful 30 under 30, their, their famous 30 under 30 list. What does that uh, feel like as an entrepreneur like yourself? How does that feel when you get named in that mix? I mean, it's it's incredibly humbling and always feels a little undeserved. Um, but it's something that uh, I think there's this new energy around what young people are able to create. And I think like a lot of young people, I, I see very few obstacles. And, and if we have an idea or if I have an idea, we leap at the opportunity to to engage in that idea and to bring it to life. Um, so, you know, it's a really, it's a really exciting and, and energizing feeling. It's gratifying. Um, and I, I think, you know, I'd be nothing, uh, and I'd be nowhere without the, the support of my mentors and people who have been, you know, helped me be the best entrepreneur that I can be. Great. That's awesome. How big is uh, QZM? How many employees do you have? Uh, so we're nine, we're a nine member team right now. Um, but we are growing. Uh, so we're looking to hire, few new members to join the team. So if there's anybody listening at home that, that finds what we're doing interesting, uh, give us a shout. Uh, we're always looking for, you know, passionate people that, that want to, uh, you know, drive this, drive this mission and vision forward. Very cool to see the, the two worlds come together because uh, I thought that I appreciated art and then we started working on this. Uh, empty frames podcast and then once you see it and you're you know up close and you experience it it's uh it's a whole different um whole different you know world once you're like face to face with you know van gogh or something or uh or or walking through isabella stewart gardner's museum it's nuts so yeah i um, mean there's so many so many layers to the to the experience and i think for for most, like we're first scratching the surface and finding our place and what um, connects with us and what we connect with. And then you get deeper and deeper and you realize, oh, my God, there's so many layers to this onion. And then it becomes like in a, you know, a, a, a positive addiction to be like, oh, well, I wonder what he or she was thinking when they created this work of art. And I wonder who they were influenced by and what technique they used and and what impact this had on the the world around them. So 
um, I feel this and you guys feel this and it's, it's a, it's a beautiful thing to be able to experience, uh, you know, art, especially here, here in Boston, where we have such amazing, uh, museums and collections that are, you know, here for us. When did you first get into art? Like, when did you first realize that you were a, a fan of fine art? Yeah. So I kind of, my, my story, like I, I'm the middle child of five children. Um, my mom drives a school bus and my dad is a plumber and we didn't really go to museums. Uh, we didn't really go to Disney world either, but, um, we, it wasn't something that we talked about. It wasn't something that we, we did. Um, but my interest in design, I don't know what it was. I, I do know my parents like encouraged me to draw and that was something that was always important to me. If you asked me when I was eight or nine, I wanted to be an animator or a cartoonist or an illustrator. Um, and that evolved into an interest in design. Um, and so my interest in like the fundamentals of design evolved into uh, kind of pop art and maybe street art. So I remember maybe being 12 or 13 and, and being at a punk rock show and seeing something that Shepard Fairey designed maybe for an album cover or poster and went home and kept thinking about it and needed to find out more about it and saw, wow, this is actually considered art. And here are some other artists that influenced this, this uh, creator, this designer, this artist. And then that started to evolve into an interest in, uh, you know, more specifically going to museums. So I must have been 16 or 17. I remember being really interested in, in Roy Lichtenstein and having the opportunity to paint a mural at my high school uh, that used our school's mission statement. And in the speech bubbles, we would have each of the uh, each of the fundamentals of that mission statement. And for me, it was kind of like, um, you know, I knew at that point I was interested in modern art and contemporary art to some extent, although not knowing, you know, how, uh, you know, the, the, the depth and breadth of that world. Um, and, you know, as you have freedom as an adult, I started going to more and more museums. And that is what really opened my eyes, like this this experience of walking through and having a new world open up to you that when you were little, you didn't really have exposure to, you didn't really feel uh, that there was a place for you there. And, and I think especially being in Boston and having the access that I do, um, has been really eye opening just to see the, the beauty and the importance and, and all of that. So it's art has definitely kind of impacted me as a person where I, I think of myself as being very, um, having a very sharp eye for aesthetic and a, an appreciation for aesthetic. Um, and that's something that, developed i think later in my in my teenage years and earlier in my 20s thank goodness there are people like you who are shaking the cobwebs off what is perceived to be like a stuffy institution of of museums because they're not they're very they're very riveting and they're very uh you know thought-provoking but um we were nervous that there would be um, a contingent of people who would just think that you know you hear the word museum and it you kind of start to you know it, it just feels stuffy because it's, you know, you just, if you don't know, if you're not, you know, if you're yeah. not part of that world, if you, if you, if you haven't really experienced it firsthand, which you really have to do. And, yeah. Um, and what you do is a great, like I keep saying, it's a great integration between the two worlds. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, you can either look at, look at museums as a, 
uh, traditional sanctuary. And when you look at them that way, you're isolating a huge, huge portion of the population. Or you can look at them as a as a playground for new ideas or a center for community or, or a center for innovation or a hub for, for different walks of life and perspectives. And I think, you know, most institutions, uh, at least at some degree, have um, had conversations or, or made um, efforts to align more with that latter concept. And so it's something that the sector talks about more and more um, as demographics change, as the environment change, as attitudes towards art and culture and things of that nature um, evolve. So yeah, I mean, something I'm super excited to see the evolution um, in. Thank you very much for listening. Follow us on Twitter at Empty underscore Frames. Empty Frames is a co-production of Crawl Space Media and Audio Boom with original music by Jared Jansen. <laughs>